turn to Revelation chapter 7. It's where we'll be tonight, Revelation chapter 7. We'll be continuing our study through this third half, or third portion, not half, third part of the book. And essentially, um, looking at what is future. These things that we're studying uh, are future. They have not happened yet in the Bible. It's prophesied. And a, a prophecy is essentially when God speaks to a person and gives them foresight or a vision or understanding of what is about to happen. We see this happen a lot throughout Scripture, and we actually see those prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament oftentimes, and sometimes some prophecies fulfilled in between the Testaments. There's 400 years of silence in between, like the different kingdoms. We see that in the book of Daniel, but also prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled even in the Old Testament later. Uh, God keeps His promises, and that's one of the things that we see over and over again. So many of you, maybe you've been to a play, maybe you've been to like a Broadway play, or back in the day, if you went to the movie theater and went to a super long movie, and I'm not talking like, you know, an Avengers Endgame movie that's like three and a half hours, or Lord of the Rings, which is also about three and a half hours, but I'm talking like, you know, Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments, where they would have an intermission in the movie, and you'd have to get up, and you'd have to, you know, maybe refill your popcorn, refill your drink, go to the restroom, because you just can't sit there for you know, four and a half hours to finish a movie, or Gone with the Wind or something like that. It would have an intermission or a play. It would be the same way. You know, when I was in college, I was in, um, I was in and I worked on Broadway-style plays, The Sights and Sounds of Christmas, Christmas in the 40s, and that was a lot of fun. And then also did an Easter play called Jesus Behold the Man. It was a lot of fun, great time doing that. And uh, we had intermissions. And the point of me bringing up this idea of an intermission is Chapter 7 is kind of like an intermission. Uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a break. We've seen judgment happening on earth, and now it's back in heaven, and it's stopping to focus on something. And the author and the Holy Spirit is trying to draw our attention to something happening here. So just to give a, a quick recap, before we dive into the intermission, we might say, off of earth, back into heaven, um, we, what we see here um, in our text um, is, for instance, in our last chapter, we talked about the six seals. There was a scroll in heaven, had, had seven seals on it, and these seals, one at a time, were unfolded by the Lamb, and judgments were poured out on the earth. And we're going to see here, like in the last chapter, we saw that in the fifth seal, these believers who were martyred for their faith, and they're sitting um, under the altar, which is a symbol of their blood being spilt. They died for their faith. If you don't know what a martyr is, a martyr is someone who dies for what they believe in, testifying to that which they believe in, even to their death. Where they're told, you need to deny your faith, and yet they still stand for it, and they still choose to to die holding fast to what they believe. Now, um, in the last chapter, remember I talked about this idea of what's called the Great Tribulation. This is an event that hasn't taken place yet. It's in the future, and it's a seven-year period on earth. That's very important, and you're going to see that unfold later as well. Uh, and we could we had talked a lot about that then, but in this time there are believers. Okay, now why am I emphasizing that? Well, because I mentioned something before. I'm going to talk about this again tonight. Is the idea of the rapture? Is that God calls from heaven us who are believers on earth home to be with Him before the tribulation? Okay, that's that's what I believe about the end times. And so you're like, well, wait a second. How could believers be there in the tribulation? Well, I'm going to talk about that. And we're going to see that in our text tonight. But what we saw in the fifth seal was this judgment, this persecution of believers. Uh, See, during the first years of the tribulation, which was during the first seal, we see this time of peace and this world ruler who's a conqueror, but he's also one who who brings peace or temporary peace on the earth. And during that time, there will be a genuine witness of the gospel. Um, So you might think, okay, I thought believers were removed from the earth. Well, we're going to see in this chapter in particular that there's a group of believers, which is our parentheses, our intermission of God's judgment. If we turn to 2 Thessalonians, keep your hand in Revelation, but go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to see in, in this section, we talk, it talks about the Antichrist. Starting in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, so this is talk, that's talking about the rapture, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So people were worried that the day of the Lord had already come, and they had missed um, the Lord's coming. And he says, no, 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 that hasn't happened yet. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called object 
or sorry, every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you? I told you these things. And you know, listen to this, this is very important. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may not be, so that he, sorry, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only, listen to this, this is very important. He who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now, I want to talk about that real briefly. Now, what is this? The, the one who restrains it. This is the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit had been restraining the wrath of God from coming on earth. And if the Holy Spirit no longer restrains sin, and if we're going back to the idea of believers during the tribulation, how can people be saved? Well, it was just like the day of Pentecost. You see, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in the hearts of people. And they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do ministry, to do ministry. And before that, people were still saved the same way. Some, maybe you might ask this question, how were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus came? Well, it's the same way, by grace, through faith. Remember Romans chapter 4? And it talks about Abraham believed, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. It's the same way in the New Testament. You believe in God, and you are made righteous, because your faith rests in God, not in your own works. So the Spirit is no longer... Uh, active, but people could still be saved in the tribulation. So notice that chapter 6 ends with this, the sixth seal. Remember, I said there's seven, right? The text says there's seven. We're going to see the seventh seal up ahead. It won't be today, but up ahead. So the main idea of this passage, before we dive into it, here's our main idea statement. It's a little long, but we'll leave it up, so bear with me. Main idea. God has a program for Israel and the evangelization of the world during the great tribulation okay so i make a i make a distinction here you're going to see up ahead that when i'm talking about israel i am talking about the nation of israel and i think this text tells us that okay the 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 we might say ethnic israel people who are descendants of abraham okay god has a program for israel in the evangelization of the world during the great tribulation why so that he might demonstrate to all that salvation belongs to him so that he might demonstrate to all that salvation belongs to him. That's a long main idea, but it's a, it's a big book, Revelation. So we got it down, okay? So we'll leave it up there for a while. Look at our first point is going to be verses 1 to 3. Look at, look at your text in, in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. What is the, what is the this he's referring to? We just asked this question. Who can stand? There's all this judgment happening, all these seals unfolding. Well, now it's paused for a minute, and he's focusing on what's happening in up above in heaven, but it's, it's also happening on earth. Look, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, it's just a, a metaphorical way to describe that the entire earth is covered, okay, uh, these, with these angels who are doing something. What are they doing? They're holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, so coming from the east, that's where the rising of the sun is, right, with the seal of the living God. It's really interesting. Remember what a seal stands for? Like if I wanted to, if I, let's just say I lived in ancient Israel and I was a Roman and I was the guy who was tasked with getting Pilate's groceries, Pontius Pilate's groceries in the marketplace. So I had to go get some, some really good hummus and some uh, really good lamb or whatever I wanted to get from the market, right? So I go get it and I had to pay for it. And let's just say that I was given the business ring of Pilate and I had to go and wax seal, deliver this payment and this statement, right? And I would, I would, they'd melt it in wax and I'd stick my ring in there and it'd leave a seal mark and there'd be evidence that I had the authority of Pilate to pick up those groceries. Now that, I don't know if they ever shopped like that. I'm just kind of making it up, but you kind of get my point, right? Like if I go to the store and I have my credit card, right? And they say, sir, we want to see your ID to make sure, you know, and sometimes grocery stores do that. See your ID just to make sure your, the name on your ID is the same as on your credit card. What are they asking? Do you have authority for this payment? Is it yours? In the same way, this idea of a seal is an idea of authority. God has this authority. He's the seal of the living God. And what happens? And it says, He called with a loud voice to the four angels who have been given power to harm the earth and sea. That's really interesting. God through angels enacts judgment. That's really interesting, isn't it? In the end times. Now, what did He say to them in this loud voice? Saying, verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. What? For what? Until when? until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, on their foreheads. 
So notice here, these, the winds of the earth are restrained. God is pausing on his judgment. And the reason is laid out in verse 3. In verse 3, right? It's really clear. God is going to seal his servants, the servants of God. This means, as Walbert says here, he says, they are being set apart with this seal as a special divine remnant to be a testimony to God's grace and mercy during this time of judgment. And really, um, it's a powerful picture of even God utilizing these angels. So what would this seal look like? Because notice, what does the text say? Where is the seal at? What does the text say? It's on their forehead. Right? So you're like, okay, this would be obvious, right? It's on the forehead. Well, sometimes when this language of a seal is used, sometimes a physical seal is not even what's implied. So if you, if you um, turn in your Bibles, you can you know, keep your hand in Revelation. We're going right back. But, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And what does that say? Turning to it now, it says this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed... For the day of redemption. There's many of us in here who are believers in God, but if you were to look at our foreheads, do you see a seal on our forehead saying, I belong to the Holy Spirit? No, you don't see that, right? It's a, it's a metaphor to describe something. If you actually go uh, early on in chapter 1, I remember seeing this as well. It just came to my mind. Um, but if you look in chapter 1, where it talks about the Spirit of God, let's see, let's see, let's see. Aha. Well, it does, yeah, okay, verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so guess what? When you were saved, if you've been saved recently, and that what do I mean by saved? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again from the grave, and you've repented of your sins, and confessed those sins to him, and called on him to save you, then he saves you. You know what happens when that happens? This is what the Bible says. Look at the text. It says this. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, this is what happened right away. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed. And, and it describes the Holy Spirit. What is he? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hey, if you've ever bought a car in here, if you're saving to buy a car, some of you are about getting close to driving. Some of you are driving, and we, we need to pray for all of ourselves as we're on the road. Um, but... When you buy a car, you put down a down payment. You put down a down payment. That's what that word means, the guarantee. It's a down payment. So in other words, God has put a down payment on your soul saying, you belong to me, and I'm waiting until you get to heaven to give you the rest of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's a beautiful picture. It really is of the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're sealed. We're his. We belong to him. That's the idea of a seal. So going back to our text, Right? This could be an invisible mark, a seal that only God sees. And it's a guarantee for God that he owns you. Yes, that he owns you. You know, we're a culture and a society who hates authority. We, we are. Music, secular music often promotes anti-authoritarianism. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't like it when our coach tells us something to do, or our teacher, or our parents, or our pastor. You don't, we don't like it. We want to be our own authority. You know where that comes from? A sinful and wicked heart who thinks we know more than everybody else. It's called pride. And you know what God says? That he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That he who exalts himself will be humbled, but they who humble themselves will be exalted. So who are you? Are you humble or are you prideful? You see, ownership means God has a say over our lives. Do you live as if that's the case in your life? Do you live as if you, know, you understand that God owns my thoughts? Like, I am a slave to God. We don't like that language of slavery, but it's clear if you go read Romans 6, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. What are you? What are you? Are you a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness? And if, and if God owns me, then I am also secure in Him. That's really important as well. God is a good master. He's a good king, a good Lord who takes care of me. So if we're owned by God, that means we are redeemed. Maybe if you have a gift card and it says, redeem this, where? You know, wherever you've got that gift card. Redeem it at Chick-fil-A, redeem it on iTunes, redeem it at Amazon.com. Redeem, what, the, what does that mean? The word redeem, it means to buy back, to buy. So if we've been redeemed by Christ's blood, that means he purchased us. He purchased you. He purchased me. And because he's purchased us, he has a right to say that we do exactly as he says that we submit to his authority 
And guess what? We are secure from our enemies. We are secure from sin and the penalty of sin because we are purchased by Christ. We see this action of people being sealed in other parts of the Bible, don't we? Think, we just were in Genesis for Sunday school. Think of Noah, right? Noah in the ark. He was sealed into the ark and saved from the wrath of God poured out on the earth. We think of Rahab at Jericho, sealed and protected. Maybe those exact words aren't used, but we get the concept, don't we? They're owned by God and they're secured by God. That's what a seal symbolizes here. So you might ask this question, so in, the, in this time of the tribulation, how will they be saved without believers on the earth? It isn't hard to imagine if at this point Christ has not returned. Obviously, we're all here. We don't see him. We're waiting on him. Well, what do we currently have? Well, Bible's just about everywhere. What else do we have? The internet. It's not hard to imagine that if someone is like, you know, I remember hearing something about believers, you know, disappearing from the earth in the rapture. Well, I'm going to Google this. There's some people who are, we would say, they grew up in the church, but they don't believe in Christ at all, so they've heard it all. I know a lot of people like that. And when they see the rapture happen, they're going to be like, wow, this was real, and I've been denying Christ. And they might come to faith in Christ for that, if this is to take place in our lifetime. Just imagining with me, right? That's what I'm talking about. So, essentially, people could potentially have easy access to the Word of God, or have theoretical knowledge about Christ and be saved in this time of tribulation. We can imagine that for sure. But our text is not talking about those things that could be. So let's show, let's just see where the text is going to our next point. Look at verse 4, okay? This is the next section here. Verse 4 to 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, and 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So, interesting, isn't it? 12,000 from all these tribes. It seems to be communicating something about this seal. Notice it's the sons of Israel. You see, there are a number of questions that come to the forefront when studying these tribes. For example, you notice Joseph is mentioned. Joseph is mentioned as a tribe. and We just studied the book of Joshua a couple years ago. We don't see an inheritance given to the tribe of Joseph. And there's also some tribes that are missing. We didn't hear anything about Dan. We didn't hear anything about Ephraim, right? Those are some other tribes that are, that are obviously mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, many speculate that um, in the place of Ephraim, because Ephraim is a son of Joseph. I don't know if you guys know this, but Manasseh and Ephraim, if you remember from Genesis, those are the son, two sons of Joseph out of Egypt. So those are actually Egyptian names. And there were tribes named after them. Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. So what's really interesting about this, once again, um, Joseph is probably in the place of Ephraim. That's what they say, because we see Manasseh in there, right? So that's speculating, but that's probably the case. But in addition, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned, right? And normally when you see a list of tribes, sometimes you don't see Levi, because remember in the book of Joshua, they don't get a, a big piece of land like that, because they're meant to serve God at the tabernacle, or then at this case, and, and later in the Temple Mount. So the tribe of Dan is not mentioned, and there's two potential reasons for this. Number one could be that the Antichrist is from the tribe of Dan. In other words, he would be a son of Israel uh, in that case. And the reason that people speculate that is from Genesis 49, 17. I want to turn to it so you can see the evidence for that. Uh, Genesis 49, 17. It says, Dan shall be a, listen to this, shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards. We see these other... Um, you could say blessings and curses on the sons of Israel in Genesis 49. You can go read them. It talks about Judah. Remember we talked about the Lion of the tribe of Judah? We went back to Genesis 49 to explain why Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Maybe you remember that, maybe you don't. But that was the tribe that would lead. That's the tribe where the kings, the line of kings would come from for Israel. So the other reason, besides maybe the Antichrist coming from the tribe of Dan, that could be the case. But this is a more common explanation, was that Dan was the very first tribe to go into idolatry. Now, what's idolatry? 
Idolatry is when you and I, or anybody, worships something created. Y'all just start naming things off. What are some things we could end up worshiping that are created? Man, y'all guys are quick. You're listening. That's good. Trees, pizza. What else? Cell phones, money. What else? Football. What else? Basketball. Yeah, that's, that's fine. We can enjoy God's creation. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's creation. Actually, God said he created everything good and everything for our enjoyment. But what happens? What do we do with good things? We pervert them and we worship them. We make them into idols. John Calvin says that our hearts, our hearts are idol-making factories. That's our hearts. And so our hearts, as Jeremiah also says, are desperately sick, incurably sick. Who can know it? Well, the Lord who tests the heart and the mind can know it and he can change your heart. So Dan is the first tribe that went into idolatry. So that's why they speculate that that's why it's not, why it's not mentioned. The text doesn't tell us why it's not mentioned. So we can only speculate at that point. But the most important thing here, though, is that the 12 tribes from Israel are sealed. Now, there's a massive debate about this. And this debate will go on probably until Christ returns. But the debate is this, in brief. And as you grow older and you study the Bible, you'll come across this. And so I just want to put it out there before you. I'm not going to get into every detail about it, but I'll mention where I stand. So there's this whole debate of saying in the New Testament, okay, the church is Israel. That's what people say. The church is Israel. Some people say, well, no, Israel is Israel and and the church is the church. They're two separate um, stewardships or, or ways in which God has worked. Now, clearly, right, we all know the Jews rejected Jesus. They did. They did not accept him as their Messiah, but the 12 disciples were all what? Jewish. And so, and what would Paul do in the book of Acts? You guys remember what his practice was when he would go share the gospel? What would he do? He would go to a synagogue first, and then he would go to the Gentiles, even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles, right? And so he saw this necessity of bringing the gospel to them. Now, we went through the book of Romans uh, this past year. We just finished it. You could go back and listen to Pastor Lewis preach from Romans 9 to 11. That's also a highly debated passage. And it, it actually makes a distinction in Romans 9 through 11 of ethnic Israel, people who are physically descendant of Abraham. And the book of Galatians makes the argument, hey, just because you're physically descended from Abraham doesn't make you saved. It's kind of like saying this, oh, because my parents go to church, I'm saved. You know, one of my best friends in high school made that argument to me. I was in Bible college for a couple years. I went back home to visit him, shared the gospel with him. He's like, oh, my grandma's a Christian, so I'll go to heaven too. And I was like, um, where is that in the Bible? <laughs> I was like, that ain't in the Bible anywhere, man. You know, uh, that's not how it works. You have to, on your own, you have to trust in Christ. And that's why, and students, I want to emphasize this with you, it's good that you're in church. That's great. And it's awesome that your parents bring you. But your faith has to be your own. And you shouldn't just wait till you're 18 and you're moved out of the house. You've got to make that choice today. Choose this day whom you'll serve, not choose when you're 18. The Bible doesn't say choose when you're 18 whom you'll serve. Choose this day. Choose today who you'll serve. Are you going to serve your flesh? Are you going to serve yourself? Or are you going to serve Christ? And you have that choice before you. You're young adults. The idea of a teenager is a really new idea in world history. Okay? You know, you are young men and young women. Okay? Yes, there's a sense of where you all need to mature, which, by the way, everyone needs to mature. Even if you're 85, you still need to mature. Everyone needs to mature and grow into Christ's likeness. But, students, listen to me. It's so important for you to understand that you make your faith your own. And before I get too distracted and go off that trail, because that is an application point, I do want to go back to this idea of Israel and the church. Galatians 6.16 is often used as a proof text, okay? We could put it on the screen, Galatians 6.16. And this is what Paul says in the end of the book of Galatians. Highly recommend you go read and study Galatians, by the way, because Martin Luther, if you remember Martin Luther, the thing we did in, at the Reformation Day, October 31st, because he studied the Psalms, Romans, and Galatians, it really helped him understand the gospel, that justification is by faith, it's not by works of the law. But notice Galatians 6.16 says, As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, Listen to this, and upon, look at the phrase, upon the Israel of God. Now, that's been a phrase of much debate, and people have thought, well, that's referring to the church clearly, because he's saying those who walk by this rule in the context of this passage, that's believers, the Israel of God. This is the only passage in the New Testament 
that is focusing on believers, okay, and referring to them as Israel. Every other time it's the church. There's 65 occurrences of the word Israel in the New Testament, okay? And this one specifically is clearly about believers in Jesus, but they're called the Israel of God, okay? Now, I just wanted to, I wanted to point that out for you as a thought, but I want to explain this a little further. So we're almost done with this part, and we'll move on to the next, so please give me your ears. Um, all the other references in the New Testament actually refer to Jews outside of this one, okay? Ethnic Jews. For those who think Israel is in reference to the church in the New Testament, I understand why they think that Galatians refers to um, Gentile Christians, possibly, because they're, they say they believe in what's called, right here, replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel, okay? Um, but in this case, that is not how I understand the New Testament's view of the church in Israel. Um, I, this first does refer to Jewish Christians, okay? Because Galatian, the Galatian heresy were, were Jews who were believing you needed to follow the law to be saved. And so he's, I think he's referencing Jewish believers in Christ, okay? So, real quickly, and then we're transitioning to verse 9 of Revelation 7-9. We know this verse refers to Israel who came to faith because the tribes are being mentioned specifically. What use is there? Listen to this. What use is there? For this tribal breakdown of 12,000 from this tribe and this tribe and this tribe and this tribe, if there isn't a sense of ethnically being from them. Like, look, I'm a McNeely. Mick means son of in Scottish. Neely is from King Neil of Ireland who died, or he killed nine robbers in 376 AD. Pretty cool. Know nothing else about him. But that created the O'Neill clan. If you know any O'Neills, we're related somehow. Okay? And then McNeely, son of Neil. That's what my name means. I'm descended from this guy who killed nine robbers. Cool stuff, right? But I'm also descended from other people. And what does a name mean? You're carrying a sense of legacy, of, of generations of, of life being transferred, of offspring, right? We get that. That's why you have a last name. It means you're from that family. You're from that group. You're from that tribe. That's what it means. And so in the same way, these tribes are referring to literal people and being descended of them. And God, now some people say we don't know what Jews are descended from what tribes today? Some of those records are lost. Well, God knows, and God will do his will. He can, nothing is too hard for God, and there's a lot of things he knows that we don't, right? So let's go to verse 9 now. Let's go to verse 9. Let's briefly try to make a case for that. Look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Notice our, the language of throne again is back, used often in the book of Revelation. And what are they? They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now it seems clear to me in this verse that these are a great multitude of Gentiles, right? It says they're from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, they're all standing before the throne. So we just went through listing these Jews and then these Gentiles. We see that really clearly. They've come to faith in Christ as well. And as they stand before God's throne, they're worshiping him. They recognize with the others of the 12 tribes who Jesus is, that salvation belongs to him. They respond to God not quietly, but with a loud voice. When we're excited, we get loud, right? Like when Thaddeus is excited, he screams and it hurts my ears. It's really funny. But I get it. He's excited. He's, he's joyful. And Christmas morning, he screams. I'm like, oh my goodness, I need earplugs. Someone get me earplugs for Christmas, okay? Um, but seriously, when we are joyful, when we are jubilant, that's where the idea comes from, we can't help it. We can't help but say something. We can't help but respond. That's how they're responding. They're joyful. If you go to John chapter 15, I didn't plan to read this, but let's go to John chapter 15 real quickly. It talks about abiding in Christ. And I want you to see this. This is an amazing passage, a whole other sermon for another time. But John 15, 1 through 11, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just so you know the context. He opens up saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then go down to verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a double negative, by the way. So it's like you definitely cannot do anything at all, is what he's saying. Then go down to verse 11. 
So he said all these different things. And then in verse 11, it says, these things I've spoken to you. So everything he just said in 5, 1 through 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We can go back to Revelation, but the, the idea there is when we live in God and God is our very life, it gives us joy because he desires that his joy would be in us and then it wouldn't just be half full, but it'd be overflowing. Overflowing. And we only can have the joy of God if we know him. If we walk with him. So as we continue on through our passage, notice how these Gentiles and these people from all the nations are described. They're standing. They're standing before the throne. Have you ever been in a room and someone walks in? Maybe the best example I can think of is a wedding, right? All these people coming down the aisle and you're sitting, but when the bride comes down the aisle, what happens? All rise, we all stand. If a judge comes into a courtroom, what happens? All rise. We all stand. Standing is a physical way of showing honor, of showing respect to someone. They're all standing before the throne. And notice, before the Lamb. And what's happening here? They're saying the Lamb is worthy of worship. And how are they clothed? In white robes. What do those robes signify? Tell me, what do those robes signify? The white robes. I can't hear a whisper. Thank you, man. Purity. They reference purity. Hey, in the palm branches, the palm branches, they represent victory. Remember when Jesus came into town during the triumphal entry? And what did they wave? Palm branches. We celebrate that on Palm Sunday. These people, I believe, are the martyrs we just read about in chapter 6, 11 to 14. And they ascribe to God praise for his salvation. Because remember, remember what happened? Go back to chapter 6. What happened in chapter 6, 11 to 14? See, it opened the first sea. I'll start at verse 9, actually. Um, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then we see the semblance here between the white robes, like we just saw. And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we see clearly in our text, this is a reference who it's back to. And this massive number of people, I believe, shows an indication that during the time of the Great Tribulation, all these people who die, all these people are people who um, were martyred for the faith and were unbelievers when the rapture happened, but they came to faith in Christ. In other words, great revival took place because these people from all the 12 tribes went out and shared the gospel and people were saved. I want to share with you this illustration from... Uh, one of my favorite books. This is one of my most precious possessions in my library. This book right here, Jesus Freaks, by DC Talk and The Voice of the Martyrs. If you don't know who DC Talk is, they're a funny 90s band. I think I have that book. Oh, good. Well, this book, when I was an unbeliever, I, my parents gave me this book, and um, I had been studying about the disciples, and I read this whole book. I couldn't put it down because it was story after story of people who were willing to die for their faith. And I just thought in my comfortable 2002 teenage life, I thought, you know, life's pretty easy. But 9-11 had just happened, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, our world's kind of crazy. And God was trying to get my attention, and he used this book to get my attention of people who gave witness to Christ even to their death. And I want to read to you something uh, real briefly here. Um, Richard Wormbrand, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, he said this, While in jail we sang... While in jail, we sang. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in the Church of Philippi, right? Or in the Philippian jail, he sang in prison. And once the director of the prison entered our cell, furious, he said, I was told that you sing subversive songs here. Let me hear one, he commanded. We sang these moving words. O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame bowed down. He listened to the end, then turned and left without saying a word. Later, he became a brother in the faith. Here's the lyrics to that song written by, it's ascribed to St. Bernard of Clairvaux over a thousand, almost a thousand years ago. O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. 
How art thou pale with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn? How does that visage languish, which once was bright as morn? Thy grief and bitter passion were all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? O oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Be near when I am dying, O oh, show thy cross to me, and for my succor flying, come, Lord, to set me free. These eyes new faith receiving from thee shall never move, for he who dies believing dies safely in thy love. What a powerful hymn that these persecuted in the church of God in Romania sang to that guard. O sacred head now wounded, Christ suffered. And those who suffer share in the sufferings of Christ. As Paul said in Colossians, filling up the afflictions of Christ in his body, he labored with all of his energy to get the gospel out to all people. So this persecution led them to worship God. Paul did this in the New Testament, like I said, and this is exactly what's happening in our text. They were persecuted, but now they're in heaven. What are they saying? Crying out with a loud voice. Look at the text. Salvation, where does it belong? To our God, to our sovereign, holy, and true Lord. And where is he? He's not absent. He's not far away as other people would have you believe. He sits on the throne, and they see the Lamb of God there. They worship there. And we see how... Since it belongs to him, salvation does. He owns it. He saves. He secures. The persecuted, they praise God. Think of um, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Guys, think about this for a moment. Wait a second. You're saying, I am blessed. I'm in a great state before God. When I'm made fun of, when I'm insulted, when I'm slapped, when I'm spit on, when I'm killed for my faith. Yes, you are. Pretty counterculture, isn't it? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a powerful passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Now as we move on to a point number four, look at verse 11 and 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Now notice it was not only the, the saints in heaven, the Jews here and the, and the Gentiles who were persecuted, but the angels were standing, showing that honor to the Lord and to the Lamb. And, and the elders as well and the four living creatures. And what do they do? They fall on their faces, a sign of humility. And they're before the throne and they worship God. To worship God is to serve Him, is to ascribe to Him what He is due, what He deserves. And what do they say? Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. When they ascribe blessing to God, they're saying blessing to Him, meaning that God is pleased with our lives, that He is in a happy state because of the way in which we serve Him. He doesn't need us. He does, if God was hungry, He wouldn't tell us He was hungry. He needs nothing from us. God is self-sufficient, but yet He is pleased when we live by faith. And that blesses him. Glory is another thing. What is glory? Glory is a sense of weightiness or fame. I've used illustrations like this before, but if someone very well known, Drew Brees or um, Joe Burrow, what if they just walked in the room right now? We'd all be like, whoa, look who it is. Why? Because there's a sense in our culture where they have fame or they have glory, right? But God has the glory of all glory. He's wonderful and majestic. And so to him belongs glory, our attention, but wisdom belongs to God. You know, God is called the only wise God, that there's none like him. With wisdom, it says he made the earth. So wisdom belongs to him. Thanksgiving belongs to him. So we should be grateful. We should respond to God with gratitude in our hearts. You know, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Look at Romans chapter 1. This passage has always helped me to be grateful, which you're like, how is this passage helping you to be grateful when it's talking about God's wrath? Well, look really closely at the text and you'll see what I mean. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So if you are not in Christ, you are ungodly, you're unrighteous. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against you who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we don't like the truth. We like to ignore it. We like to put it off. We like to suppress it down. If you've ever been in a swimming pool and you have a, a big ball and what are you trying to do with it? You're trying to keep it underwater. We used to have a you know, six, seven foot pool at my parents' house and we would try to do that. We'd all swim and push the ball down and we couldn't stay underwater long enough. And what happens? Boom, it comes back up. You can try to suppress the knowledge of God, but it always comes back. Always comes back up. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Think about that for just a moment. His invisible, meaning you can't see it, his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. It's kind of oxymoronic, isn't it? You can clearly see something invisible. That's, that's the truth. God has made himself easily known. Knowledge of God, listen here, it's widely accessible, but as this text also says, it's easily resistible. Why is it resistible? Let's keep reading. What's well, been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Here's the part I'm talking about. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So what's the result? Look at the text. But they became futile or vain or meaningless in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and created things. Therefore, God gave them up. That's God's wrath. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Why? Look at the text. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we'll stop there. We're preaching Revelation 7, not Romans 1. But very clearly in this passage, what do we see? When you don't honor God as he deserves, when you don't give thanks to God as he deserves, you become foolish in your thinking. You become meaningless and vain in your thinking. Think about the things you've thought about lately. Think about the things you've been stirring over in your mind lately. I'm not saying you, you, you can't think about other things besides God, because obviously the world we live in, there's other things besides God in front of our face. But how do we handle those other things? Do we give glory to God through those things, through your schoolwork, through your sports? Through your hobbies? Are you giving glory to God through those things? Because remember, like I said before, it says in 1 Timothy, God created everything for us to enjoy, but we can easily turn those things into idols. So how do we handle the things that he's made? Do we give thanks to him through those things? Do we honor him through those things? That's what we have to ask ourselves. When we look at this text, and we see these seven things ascribed to God, back in verse 12, blessing to God, glory to God, wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, but also power and might belong to God. In other words, when we look to God, we say there's none like him, that you and your heart know there's, there's no one more powerful than God. There's no one more mighty than God. And they're ascribing that, saying this belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. Now look at point number five, verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders, they addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know, this is John speaking, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14, literally in the Greek here, it says this. I'm transliterating it word for word. These are those who came out of the tribulation, the great one. So there's one tribulation. We talked about this last week with Matthew chapter 24. I'll briefly turn there, Matthew 24, verse 21. You can write down the reference. He'll put it up on the screen for sure. But Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation. These are the words of Jesus. Remember, he's speaking to his people about the end of the age, the signs of the times. For then there will be a great tribulation. Listen to this. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. 
He's talking about this time that we're reading about. So clearly, the audience, or the, the great host of people, this, this person knew clearly who it was. It's the people who die and are martyred in the Great Tribulation. And notice how they're described. This is a, guys, this is amazing. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Hold up, wait a second. Who here has ever been wearing a white shirt and you bust your nose or you bust your lip or you cut yourself and you got blood on your white shirt? It sticks out, right? It sticks out. I remember one time I was on my way home. I used to ride my bike home from school. didn't live too far away. And I was trying to pop a wheelie. I was really bad at doing that. I couldn't do it. So I kept trying to practice it. I wasn't with my friends. I was by myself. And I'm like, I got to get this so my, I'm cool like my friends. I could pop a wheelie. Well, I'm trying to pop this wheelie. And next thing you know, a car comes rushing around the corner. And I'm midair. And I'm like, uh-oh, what do I do? Not thinking. I turn my wheel while I'm midair. So you can only guess what's about to happen next. I literally faceplant right into the ground. It was such a stunning moment. I was like, this is embarrassing. Get up. Keep moving. Don't cry. And keep going. And I'm walking down the road. And my Uncle Gary's driving by on his way home from work, my dad's twin brother. And he slams his brakes. And, and he's not a believer, so he says some choice words. And he's like, what in the world happened to you? And I said, what? What? He says, you're bleeding. There's blood all over me. And I had my tooth pierced through my chin. Right there. And had blood running all down me. And I was so stunned by that that I didn't even know it happened. I, it was so embarrassing. He's like, get in the car. And I'm like, okay. And I, so for fun at dinner, I squirted water through that little hole in my mouth. <laughs> but, what? Did you tell the truth? Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. That, that actually happened. Yes. Yeah. Um, not embellished at all. Um, and so it healed after about a day. Um, but anyway. Yeah, free, free, yeah, I got a free little chin piercing, right? Um, but anyway, so the point is, right, obviously my, my shirt was stained with blood. Obviously, though, in this picture, think about how, what is trying to be communicated here in this text about the role of blood, but also how can blood make something white? Well, this is not just regular blood. It's the blood of the lamb. And I want to show you, I want to walk you through Scripture and a bunch of passages here and point very clearly to the blood of the Lamb. Uh, real quickly before we do that, I meant to mention one more thing about the, about the Great Tribulation, so I'm sorry. We'll do that in just a second. But I want to quote Walvert here, and he's talking about uh, this passage. This passage clearly teaches that many Gentiles will be saved during the Tribulation. Uh, the command to preach the gospel to every nation throughout the world. We see this in our Great Commission passage that you guys know pretty well. This will have its ultimate fulfillment in this way before Christ comes back to establish his millennial kingdom. The concept sometimes advanced that the rapture cannot occur because all the world has not heard the gospel is a faulty conclusion. Because the requirement that all the world hear the gospel pertains not to the rapture, but to the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation to set up his kingdom, which takes place in Revelation 19. We'll see that as we study the book. Walvard continues, Though the church should press on with all zeal, we should do that, and presenting the gospel to every creature, it is not necessary for the rapture to wait until this task is completed. So we have this task before us, to tell the world of the blood of the Lamb. So, as we look at this passage, turn to Leviticus. Leviticus 17, 14. This is, and you want to write these passages down, okay? Leviticus 17, 14. This would talk about the role of sacrifice. And notice, for the life of every creature, listen to this, is its blood. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Okay? So we don't sit here and eat, eat blood. Okay? And that's kind of the point of it. But the, but the principle, as this text is teaching, for the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. All right? Now we look closer here. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews 9, 22. And there's so much here about the blood. I just want to focus on this one verse, though. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Ah, wait a second. It's the idea of made white, right? We're, they're made white by the blood of the Lamb. Well, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I want to say that again. 
without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of your sins. Well, let's continue on to our next passage here, which is Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 20. Okay, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, ch- the ca- sorry, to care for the church of God. Listen to this. Which he obtained with his own blood. That's how God obtained you, believer, with his own blood. In our next passage here, the book of Romans, actually a couple verses in Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Look at what it says in 3.25. Actually, to complete the sentence, I'll just start in verse 23, or or, middle of verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, listen here, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now, this big old word, propitiation, okay? That just means that God's wrath for sin was appeased. Say appeased. 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 God's wrath for sin was appeased, okay? God was pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. That's what that means, a propitiation. How? By his blood. And then Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Many of you know 5, 8 from Bible drill, but look. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But look at the next verse. Since therefore, we now have been justified. Listen here. By his blood. Guys, it doesn't say we've now been justified by our works. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say I've been justified by going to church, justified by reading my Bible, justified by doing X, Y, or Z. It's one thing and one thing alone, Christ alone. We have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we continue on in this journey through looking at the word blood throughout the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him... We have redemption. How? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And lastly, the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Colossians 1, 20. And it says, And through him to reconcile to himself, this is Christ, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Say making peace. Making peace. peace. How? How? By the blood of his cross. This is what Christ has done. All this passage today, all of these passages I brought before you, and especially this Revelation passage about their garments being washed white in the blood of the Lamb, shows to, listen here, the necessity, say necessity, necessity, the necessity of Christ's substitutionary death, meaning he stood in your place. He stood in your place. Do you understand that today? Maybe if you're not a believer in here today, or maybe you've just become a believer, or you've been one for a while, this idea of Christ being our substitute is absolutely essential for you to grasp. If you don't understand substitution of Christ, you don't understand the gospel. Now, this might be a new term for you, but I want you to understand something. Christ stood in your place. That's substitution. What what does that mean? You deserve the wrath of God. But Christ bore it for you on the cross. He bore it for you. That's what that means. That Romans 5, 8, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's him being our substitute, him standing in our place. We sang it tonight in our song. Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That's exactly how Christ did it. We see this really clearly, actually, even Pictured, one of the earliest is in the book of Exodus, chapter 12. Look at Exodus 12, 13. This was a demonstration of being saved from God's wrath. The blood, they would kill the lamb and put it over the doorpost. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, trusting in God by faith saves you from the wrath of God that you deserve. God's blood in Christ poured out as Jesus the Lamb 
is meant to cleanse you. See, the blood of Christ is the cleansing agent for your sin. We must rest in the sacrifice of Christ because, you see, as these people before the throne of God are standing there, how are they standing there? They're standing there because of the blood. They're standing there because that's exactly what the text states. Look back in Revelation. We just read verse 14. Look at verse 14 again, and we'll go into verse 15. It says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when we see therefore, we ask what? What is it therefore, right? Well, here's the reason. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. So because of the sacrifice of Christ, they can be there. And what do they do? And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice where the throne is. The throne, as the text says, where's the throne? In the temple. It's not in a palace. It's not in a castle. Notice that's where the throne is. It's where the king is on his throne is a place of worship. God gives them purpose, so they serve. God gives them protection in his presence, and God fully satisfies them. They don't need what the beast or Satan will offer and tempt them with, or what the world offers. Why? Well, verse 17 tells you why. The word for there, for, this is why they don't need that stuff. The lamb will be their shepherd. The lamb that's in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them. And, and, and where does he guide them to? Springs of living water. Guys, what does this sound like? You know the passages I'm talking about. We don't have time to go to John 10. Man, that's a great passage about Jesus being the good shepherd. But Psalm 23, for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Guys, look at this passage. This shepherd who satisfies their hungers and thirsts will guide them to springs, not of just regular water, of living water. Remember the woman at the well? There's so many places we could go. It's just amazing. He, he, he offers her living water. He offers her living water. And you know what? Every pain and moment of suffering we will have in this life, God wipes that away. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God is a great comfort to us. I want to encourage you. Homework. Here's homework. Go read John 10. Go read Psalm 23. Go read that tonight. I'm serious. Meditate. The Word of God says meditate it on all the day long. That's your homework tonight. Go read John 10 and Psalm 23. Let that be a comfort to you because God is your shepherd that He fully satisfies. So, in conclusion, the concluding statement to tonight is this, that salvation belongs to God and is given by means of the blood of the Lamb. So, are you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the blood? As the hymn goes, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Is that you today? If it's not you today, friend, listen. The judgment of God is coming, and if you delay much longer, your life is a vapor. It appears for a little while, and it vanishes away. You don't know when your time is up. Think. Think. Don't be futile in your thinking like those who suppress the truth of God. Stop suppressing it. It's the truth. Submit yourself to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Believe in him today. Let the blood of the Lamb wash you white as snow, and your conscience will be clean and clear. Your penalty for sin will be gone. The power of sin in your life can begin to be conquered as you live out this faith. But first, you must go to that fountain the fountain of the blood of the Lamb. It's for you, it's for me, it's for all who will believe. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. I pray for these students that they will see the necessity, the great necessity of the substitutionary atonement of Christ to cover our sin. That if anyone in the sound of my voice has not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, that they will be washed God, please save every student here tonight that doesn't know you. I plead with you, God, that they would not spend eternity in hell separated from you. Lord, save their soul. It is not worth it 
to delay. It is not worth it to reject you when you are so precious. Your blood is so great, so valuable because it secured our salvation, our deliverance from sin's penalty, from its power now that we struggle and wrestle with every day, and one day from its presence. Help us to look to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.